welcome back to another exciting episode of TSR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me today to discuss all kinds of stuff. We've got sliders, we've got new lenses, we've got some camera stuff and more. But first, Devin, what have you been up to, man? I was uh, I was out shooting this week in an independent event, um, independent music event, uh, with um, the Logger's Lunchbox and some other gear out there and whatnot, and... Uh, Needless to say, like I've said in the past, Lugger's lunchbox is really heavy. My back hurts, my shoulder hurts, um, and my hands hurt even from trying to carry the thing because there isn't really any cushion anywhere on it. So, but other than that, uh, just, you know, sitting in the cellar editing, basically. What have you been up to? I uh, screwed up. I actually went out for a bunch of reshoots um, on a feature length that I'm finishing up. I have a deadline of two weeks from now to get this completed, and uh, I needed like five or six little short bits to to finish out a few scenes. And um, the Zoom H1 comes with these beautiful micro SD cards, <laughs> and I popped it out, set it on my desk so that I could grab the audio off from the day's shoot, and lost the two gig card, which represented the entire day's audio worth of shooting. So, needless to say, I had to run back out again <laughs> and reshoot all those reshoots. So, it's a reshoot wow. on top of a reshoot on top of a reshoot. Uh, for those of you wondering what I was actually up to, um, I basically just, you know, when you're doing something quick and dirty, you can grab one of these lav mics like this guy right here and plug it in, and then you can screen on a laptop uh, any clips that you've shot and have ADR done with your actors. So it wasn't really shooting audio that was lost. It was ADR audio. Not the worst mm -hmm. thing in the world, but, man, I remember Still why I hate oh. those tiny little cards. A lot of work lost. Yeah, no joke. And then I've got another crew out right now that are supposed to be back to me at 3 with uh, a bunch of other reshoots on another project that I'm working on. So... Fun times, and then to the <laughs> editing floor the rest of the day after the podcast. So that's why we're actually doing this a little bit early. Anything else, mm -hmm. Devin, before we move on to the news? No, we can go straight to the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. First thing on the list here is actually a slider. And Devin and I were kind of discussing this before the show. There hasn't been a lot of really interesting moves in the slider market for a while now. And when I saw this, I thought it was sort of new, a little novel, different at least from what we've seen in the past. This is a slider from Smart Slider. It's called the Reflex S. This comes in a 27-inch model all the way up to a 40-inch model, and the price is around 600 bucks. The novel thing about this particular slider is that they're using a fluid dynamic uh, braking system inside of the wheels that slide along the slider in order to slow down or add resistance to your slide moves. Now, if you've used any of the resistance-type sliders in the past, like the Kiesler slider, uh, those use basically a resistive element, sort of like a clutch brake at the end in order to sort of slow down and provide resistance for your moves. Not the best way to go, and this fluid system seems like it might be a little bit better. Now, Devin and I both watched the video on this. A little goofy, a little strange... What do you think, Devin? The music annoying? Uh, it, the, the music is definitely interesting. You can tell that uh, they really feel like this slider is the next, uh, the next big innovation in sliders. Uh, you know, the last one we saw was probably the Eldercron one uh, that, you know, doubled the travel space with half the size of the rails, uh, which was an interesting concept. But I think because of weight and everything else, I haven't seen a lot of people use them. This kind of seems like a step in the right direction in terms of, 
mounting something on top of something else and having it move smoothly across it uh, because uh, a lot of sliders that I have had my hands on lately have really just been like skateboard bearings on bare metal, which is really smooth if there's nothing in the way. Uh, but it's one of those things that the, there's still no like shock absorbing system per se, like any kind of rubber on the wheels or anything like that, that absorbs the smaller parts of it and metal on metal. Uh, one specific one I use, and I can't think of the name of it, but it's meant, it's a big heavy one meant to handle like big ENG cameras. Uh, it has metal on metal, but the metal was like, you know, anodized painted, whatever aluminum. And it's already like rubbed all that paint off of it. And then it, it gets tiny paint chips caught up on them. And stuff like that. It just it seems like a really terrible design, uh, but I think it's one of the only like sliders that's built to handle something that's like super big and super large. So uh, it, it's one of those where I've seen a lot of bad designs, and I've always thought that the proper way to go about it, uh, besides a, a system like you have with the shark slider, which helps to speed things up and slow things down with counterweights, is to have some kind of rubberized wheel that is running off of bearings that the carriage rides on. To me, from an engineering perspective, seems like the proper solution for this, as opposed to a lot of solutions are either just working off friction or metal on metal. So I don't know if this is worth the price. Um, Their video definitely makes it feel like this is the best thing ever that's ever slid on anything ever. But uh, (laughs) uh, but still, uh, you're right. There seems to be like kind of a lack of options right now, because right now, if you can't upgrade your slider to be motorized for time lapse or something like that, I don't think a lot of people will give it a second look. Now, what about you and your uh, your shark slider? Have you had a lot of fun with that? Well, before I show off the shark slider, which is uh, my favorite slider ever, period, uh, under a thousand dollars. Um, the actual track thing is a huge issue. If you have a Canova slider, one of the things you'll run into is because of the bearing raceway that's on that unit, there, there's no uh, protection on either side, like a brush or anything like that. So if you don't clean the track before you do a slide and you have any kind of lint or any gunk or whatever else, it will actually trip up your slide. And because there is no resistance on the basic Canova units, uh, you have to have an extremely steady hand to get even remotely good slides. And we're always fooled by these beautiful videos from every slider Mm -hmm. manufacturer ever that's like, look at how smooth and beautiful this shot is. What they don't show you is that they probably spent 15 takes getting that perfect slide or 20 takes. And you you can achieve that even with some dust on a table and a block of wood if you're very, very cautious. Now, what Devin was talking about is actually right here next to me. For the audio listeners, I am holding up a Shark S1 slider, one of my favorite sliders on the market today. Uh, This is also in the same price range. Uh, This right here is the 27-inch or 30-inch variant, I believe. Uh, I do have extension rods that will get you all the way up to 64 inches if you really want to extend it. But what's great about this is with the flywheel action here, when you start up and you slow down and you can kind of see what's going on, it gives you. Well, this... You can't really see it because it's shiny and chrome. But your your counterweight is spinning as he moves uh, the slider forward and backwards. If he flipped the slider on its side, you'd probably see it a little better. Yeah, I'm trying to think no. of like a better way to demo. Just this. you this have to worse. see the top of the wheel. Just hold it sideways. Hold it sideways. <laughs> it's like not this? complicated. Just hold it like that, Look and people will guy. see that when you move me it, on how a... to hold stuff. I can hold things. <laughs> 
No, uh, it, seriously though, like if you watch this with the, it makes all the difference. Yeah, starting and stopping with your camera because you have to defeat the counterweight to begin with. Your motion coming off the track and slowing back down again is super smooth and super accurate and really easy to control. And if you want to actually make sure that you are slowing down at a different rate, you can actually just simply touch this smooth metal surface as it's moving, and that will give you nice, easy stops. You can put this at an angle, change the resistance on it a little bit, and it'll slide down slowly at a controlled pace. One of the best non-motorized sliders out there. What And what it's essentially doing from kind of a physics perspective, the end result is it's like adding a ton of weight to the camera. So it takes a lot of energy to start moving the camera and a lot of energy to stop moving the camera. So therefore, when you're trying to pan it, any little twitches you got or anything like that are negated by the fact that it already is carrying so much momentum, which inadvertently makes it a lot easier. That's like one of the reasons why cars make really good uh, dollies is because they're so heavy and they have so much momentum that they will just coast very smoothly on their own and little rocks in the road won't slow them down because of that fact that there's so much momentum behind it. So it's it's really, I would, I would agree too, one of the best designs for a slider considering that most of the time you're struggling with just trying to get it to be smooth and that just makes it you know, the first take, it does what it's supposed to. Now, this wasn't supposed to turn into a Shark S1 no, slider sales <laughs> video. I love that slider, but that's my personal opinion, not anything expressed as an advertisement or anything like that. It's great, though. Now, back to the Smart Slider Reflex S. Do you think the fluid mm-hmm. traction on this is going to be enough to, to give you a better move than what you would get out of a resistive element like the slip clutch type system? I think so. Um, I like I said, I'd love to get my hands on it to really try it. But uh, from what I imagine their internals look like, because I couldn't find any kind of cross section or cutouts or anything like that to really see how it's using a fluid drag system. But if it's using it the way I imagine and it has actual friction between uh, the wheel that is supposed to drag it and the railing. And what I mean by that is like that it's a rubberized wheel or, you know, some kind of uh, some way that it's making really good contact with the rails. Because if it's just metal on metal, a a fluid drag system is only going to be sufficient up to a certain drag point where then just, you know, it gets defeated by the fact of the metal on metal just slides across it. So I imagine they're using rubber in these compartments. I imagine that uh, it's tightly pushed against the railing so you can add a lot of drag on it. And if that works, then you get a very similar system that you would have, because I imagine it's working kind of like a fluid clutch or um, for car guys out there, a, um, uh, you know, whatever you call it, a pause attraction or a, what do you call an LSD? LSD, right? I'm That's not what it is. a limited space princess. I don't actually know much about cars. A limited slip differential. Yeah. Cars come with clutches in their back wheels sometimes to help with traction, and that's using sometimes using fluid in order to divert power from one wheel to another wheel uh, using flywheels inside of a fluid. And I imagine that's what's going on here inside of this. And if that's the case, I could imagine it actually working really well like your system Minus the fact that you don't have to carry a counterweight is the fact that it just has fluid in it and it's fighting its fluids Uh, the same way that uh, those pedal bikes uh, where you have a fan inside of a fluid kind of work the same way where they give you resistance and they make it feel heavier than it is, uh, but they aren't adding a ton of weight because there aren't counterweights that you're spinning up and down. 
Yeah, and that is the sexy thing. This is a very small form factor, uh, unlike a lot of the, well, my shark slider is a great example. It's not as bulky or heavy. One of the things I'd like to see as an innovation for these types of sliders is actually a track gear across the entire length of the span with a gear reduction uh, spinning basically the, the same thing that we have on the shark slider spinning in the frame of the base. Because if you think about that, if you actually spin that up underneath your your counterweight and your your spinning momentum mm-hmm. is inside of the plate, so that reduces the size even more. And if you have gear reductions, you don't need to have as big of a flywheel in order to accomplish the same thing as you'd get out of the shark slider. So, I mean, sure. someone go make that for me, and I will buy it from you immediately. <laughs> The other thing to comment on the traction for these, a lot of the uh, bearing systems on these are coated in durlinium, which is like the same plastic material used for like, cutting boards and stuff like that. And that gives mm-hmm. them a little bit of grip when it's metal against another uh, unit so that they slide mm-hmm. a little bit better. The other thing is this most likely, because you can actually take the top plate off of it, uh, probably has a tensioner as well, so you can control the tension on it. And they sell two different flavors of this, one for light cameras and one for everything else. So that would probably tell me that the tension system is only rated for so much traction on the smaller units, the $600 units, and rated for some other tension rating for larger cameras. That would sure. be my guess anyway. It doesn't look like it has additive rails uh, like the Shark where you can adjust uh, how long your track is. I think you buy the track that you get. Uh, but in my mind, if this fluid drag works as well as the uh, drag for, you know, your basically your tripod head. Because the same concept is kind of going on here. You have a fluid system you're using to cause drag, um, so you're negating any smaller movements, like with a decent fluid head tripod. If, if th- it's the same kind of concept and it all works like that, then I could imagine this being really great. It says patent pending. I'm imagining it's patent pending on applying a fluid drag system to a camera slider dolly system, because I doubt that this is really new technology, but... Putting it in this way is probably the way that the uh, the patent is made. So I'm kind of you know I'm kind of excited for it. It's it's a pricey slider, but uh, I'm kind of excited for it. Uh, so if you're interested in finding out more about the Smart Slider Reflex S, uh, I've got links in the show notes there. At six hundred dollars for the twenty four inch and. Six hundred and seventy nine for the forty inch. Uh, you can only buy that on their website right now. So if you're looking on Amazon or B and H, you're probably not going to find it. Now moving on down the line to some lens releases here. This is actually kind of interesting. Uh, Rokinon and Samyung, or whichever flavor of the <laughs> week you want to brand them under, whether it has a red stripe, a silver stripe, a gold stripe, or whatever, has released some Micro Four Thirds and some EFS size lenses. And actually, I shouldn't say EFS. A Canon M mount, which is sort of strange here. The mm-hmm. 21mm F14 and 50mm F12 priced at $549 and $500 respectively, with a $50 bump for the silver version, oddly, uh, comes in a Micro Four Thirds mount, a Fuji X mount, a Sony E mount, and oddly a Canon M mount. Uh, you don't see a lot of new lenses coming out for Canon's M series cameras, which is you know, kind of because Canon's, mm-hmm. I guess, abandoned it. I don't want to say completely abandoned it, but regardless of Canon's uh, proponents for their M mount cameras, this is interesting because the price is right. It's native for Micro Four Thirds, and you know, I think it's a good deal. I guess Devin, <laughs> what do you think? Five forty nine seems pretty uh, reasonable to me. 
Yeah. Well, you know what though? Um, the fact that it's a twenty-one at one point four that at for five hundred dollars uh, makes me think of it actually in terms of versus like my SLR Magic and your um, German Voigtlander. I keep for- yeah, Voigtlander. Thank you. I don't know why I can't remember that name. Uh, because I don't know, 21 to me just seems like an odd one, uh, because it's just a little bit wider than the 25. And most of the time, if I'm looking for a fast wide prime, I'm looking for something under 20, like, uh, a 17 or, you know, sometimes, you know, 12 or something like that. So it, it seems peculiar to be kind of right there in that mid ground. Um, but, uh, I guess if you wanted, I imagine these perform as well as their bigger counterparts, uh, their 50 and, um, uh, you know, their 35 and all their, you know, normal uh, Canon mount and Nikon mount and all those. If they perform the same, then I guess it's a good deal if you want smaller lenses. Uh, like I've always said with you, I've been a proponent of buying Nikon lenses if it's going to be fully manual anyways. But they're so and, freaking and big, then adapting man. it. Yeah, they are big, but then two, if I decide to go to a Sony or, you know, decide to go to borrow a 5D or something like that or a C300, my piece of glass will work on them. If you get a micro four thirds one, it is smaller. And if that's all you're ever going to do with that lens, you know, that works for you. You're worried about weight and everything else. Go for it. But for me, I'm usually letting people borrow my gear. I'm renting, you know, uh, Canon gear or Sony gear or something like that. It just gives me more options later on. So it's, I deal with the fact that they're bigger and the weight and everything else, especially like my 85 is like a brick. It's like twice the weight of my GH3. Uh, but you know, it's 85 at 1.5. It's sharp all the way down to 1.5. And, um, and I can go ahead and throw that on somebody's 5D with a small uh, shim, and I can throw it on basically anything because it's Nikon, and it's all manual, so I'm not worried about the electronics. So, once again, I wouldn't I wouldn't buy these lenses, uh, but if you are concerned about size, this is a great way to get some really fast, really cheap uh, prime lenses for your, you know, Olympus, Panasonic, or I guess even your Canon M. I suppose this is really big news for people with Canon M's because there's basically nothing out there for them unless they're adapting it anyway. So, well, with a Canon M camera too, you still have the normal APS-C crop factor, so it's not quite right. as much of a a uh, focal increase as our Micro know. Four Thirds guys or a Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera, the Super 16 size. Now, one thing I found that was really strange about this is the pricing. So. Here is the uh, 21mm f1.4 in black, and it's $4.99. But if you want uh, the silver version, it's actually an extra $50. So when did silver become that. the popular right? color, right? My only guess is that uh, th- this may be like a cost-demand kind of a thing. The only people I could think that would want silver lenses is people with like uh, the Olympus cameras that have like silver black bodies. Yeah, I was thinking maybe the Fuji X owners. Yeah, like Fuji's. You can walk in and have one of these on, and it looks like you're rocking a super Fuji lens. Sure. And I guess they go, okay, we're going to have like a handful of people that buy that. So we're going to produce a limited quantity. We're going to charge more for it because those kinds of people worry about that stuff and they'll actually pay extra money for it. Um, Because I just, I, I had a buddy of mine a few months back who I let him borrow my lenses. Uh, for his GH4, and when he gave them back, uh, they were like, uh, you know, Rokinons and stuff like that. Uh, he was like, oh, 
uh, I think you have my like Luminex body cap lens, like the back end of the lens part, uh, because I've got your like generic one that says Olympus or whatever, because I just bought like a 10 pack for $5 off eBay so I could put a back on all of my lenses. And uh, I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, I'm not that kind of guy that worries about that kind of thing. But there are people out there with their photography equipment who want everything properly labeled, everything to match, everything to look nice. They could, you know, that kind of thing. I, I'm more run a gun. I'm more like, grab me this, grab me this. We got to go. We got to go. But uh, so it's just, you know, I'm sure there's people out there who will pay the extra hundred bucks just because it matches the way their camera looks better. So uh, it, it does it does seem odd at first because we would never, you know, pay an extra hundred bucks just to get it in a different color unless it was really bad. Like if it was bright yellow or something like that, we might spend a hundred bucks if we really love the lens to just to get it in black. But it, now, it seems strange, but I, I could see why they do it and I could see why they charge more money. And I think that's because they know they can make more money. Now this is a sort of weird side note here and I'll share this because you got me thinking about colors of lenses. Uh, this is a little uh, write up over at uh, com, and they actually were using uh, truck bed rubberizing paint on stuff like their uh, Panasonic 42.5 millimeter f1.2 lens to give them a tougher coating, quote unquote, and make them a little more durable and waterproof and tough feeling. Would you paint your nope. lenses to get them? No, nope, absolutely okay. not. I think that's I think that's all stupid. I thought uh, that was insane <laughs> when I saw that. I'm like, whoa, uh, what is going on here? All it does is it prevents scratches from the body of your lens. Most of the time, though, how do you get scratches? You drop your lens. Usually you got bigger concerns than necessarily uh, scruff marks on it. You're usually more concerned about the elements breaking. So I don't find it useful. There's there's some things you can paint like that. There's some things that work. Like for one thing is like truck beds because you want them to be scratch <laughs> resistant. Um, you know, you're going to load them up with crap. That makes sense. And there's other places where I could maybe see you using that too. Uh, with some gear, say, especially if it's gear that's not painted. I mean, a lot of older filmmaking gears, you know, which is raw CNC materials and they never painted them or anything like that. It could be an interesting way to paint them and add some texture to them. But for lenses, you're not going to paint the focus ring because you want that to continue to work. And you're not going to paint the anything else on it because you want it to continue to work. So all you're painting is like the cosmetic outer portion of it. I don't imagine you're actually adding any waterproof to it that doesn't already have. Because if you did, I feel like it would impede its function of being able to twist and turn. So at no part do I see it actually helping the lens. I, sh I could think of several people who would do this because they think it's a good idea. Uh, but I personally don't see any benefit in doing it. So you'd have to be very meticulous thing. too about taping this off because if you messed yeah. up at all and you rubberized the you know focus ring or the aperture yeah. ring or something like that, that could be any the of end the moving of parts. Lens. Yeah, you're gonna ruin your lens. So I, I don't I don't see why unless you really want like a cool look to it or something like that. I mean, for cosmetics, if you're into that stuff, I mean, you, you can Plasti Dip, too. You know, you can buy that stuff in a spray can and take That's it off. That's pretty cheesy, though, right? I mean... It's the same thing as truck bed liner. It's just slightly less uh, coarse. I mean, really, it adds a rubberized texture. The, uh, it's it's great for, like, uh, tools and stuff like that. If you want to add a rubber coating to your screwdriver or something like that, you can Plasti Dip that. So... But if you're in this aesthetic of adding some ruggedness to it, it's really the same thing as uh, truck bed liner. It's just less coarse and less bumpy, so you kind of get a finer touch 
uh, surface on it. When I saw I mean, this, I, I started looking around my kit, like, what could I rubberize <laughs> that would be useful? You know, and the that first would, thing that yeah. came to mind was actually the Juice Link audio adapters because they don't have any grip at all on either side. So, no. I mean, I don't know if that's useful. Actually, that's they're, probably they're silly. built as a box, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on down the line here, we've got a nice monitor release from Dell, and Dell has been consistently releasing some very good uh, 95.5 uh, or 99.5% Adobe RGB ready monitors. This is actually a 4K IPS 32-inch panel, uh, 60 hertz. It looks like the price right now on Dell's site is $1,880. A very beautiful-looking monitor ready to go for people who need color-accurate monitors. $1,800 is pretty expensive. Devin, before we talk about the monitors that we actually use, what do you think about this guy? Oh, I, I think it's probably a beauty. It's one of those – it's like looking at a Ferrari. I can appreciate it all day. I know I'll never own it. <laughs> it's – um. It, it does look like uh, definitely the like the go to monitor right now. It's probably the sexiest monitor there is. I like the thirty two inch size. That may be a bit small for DJ. He likes his monitors to take up the entire wall. Uh, <laughs> but I think thirty two inches at four K is about as small as you can do with four K. I think anything smaller than thirty two inches, even twenty seven inches for a while, I thought was okay for four K. But no, it's not, see- man. Seeing it in person, it's really not, unless you're just like a desktop user, but then that's a lot of money to spend on your monitor just to like browse web pages and watch videos. Uh, 32 inches kind of starts feeling like the appropriate, you know, because it'll still be decently close to me. I'll be able to see everything on it. Uh, and then the 60 hertz and everything else, it seems like a stellar monitor. I've loved the Dell monitors in the past, and I think their color reproduction has been fantastic, uh, especially too if you spend a little bit extra time color calibrating it with the few tools that are out there, the few hardwares. Um, I've got one of them too from X-Ride. I think we've talked about it before, but it's beautiful. It's just way outside of my price budget. I'd rather buy a camera and a couple lenses for that kind of price. Now, on the monitor front, uh, for those of you, I guess if anybody's interested, uh, basically what I'm using right now, I've got two monitors in the studio. Uh, One of them is the Wasabi Mango UHD 420, and that's a 42-inch 4K, 60 hertz IPS display. It'll set you back uh, between $649 and $850, depending on whether you buy the one that has the uh, variable refresh rate slash uh, HDMI 2.0 version or the one that has the HDMI 1.4 version. There's not much difference other than the variable uh, refresh rate option that you can install on firmware and the HDMI 2.0. Did you so. say it's $1,000 cheaper and it's 42 inches? Yeah, and it's pretty beautiful. <laughs> um, I did have to color calibrate this. I used a spider unit and put it on there to get things right. And 42 inches, uh, for me, you know, I wear glasses, guys. Like, when I'm not wearing them, <laughs> I can't read very well, especially when things are super tiny. So having a panel this size means that I can have an entire, very easily seen... 1080p window open in my editor at the same time as I have my full timeline displayed, all my clip panes on the side there that I can go through all of my clips and check things out and whatever. And it makes it really simple to work with. The only issue I have right now with this size of monitor is that when I get down into the very corner of the screen, and I'm looking at it, but you guys can't actually see it, and I can pan this around here. The corner of the screen over there, you see my mouse? It's like... Mm-hmm. Like it gets to the edge. If there's anything right here in this territory, because of the angle of reflection, like my mouse actually disappears, but you can still see it as soon as you get over to, you know, right mm-hmm. in front of it. And it's it's sort of a wacky thing that you don't even really think about just uh, 
an issue that I ran into. <laughs> but otherwise, like, wonderful panel. Love this panel. And sure, it's probably not, even with the color calibration I've done, going to meet the same color Adobe calibration that uh, this Dell monitor comes with. But uh, 700 600 bucks for that size of 4K panel is pretty nice, and it's 60 hertz. Now, on the other side, I do also have one of those generic Korean Cat Leap monitors, the 2560 by 1440, yep. and I bought that quite some time ago. Still a great monitor. Love that one as well. Uh, the thing you got to remember about IPS panels, though, is they do put out a lot of light, so in the case where I am at right now, like my monitor, actually, by simply moving those windows around on the screen, you can see... The lighting on my face changed back and forth. Like I actually have to keep two windows open on either side in order to set up my lighting for uh, <laughs> the podcast. So yeah, what about you, Devin? Well, what are you using, man? We we we've discussed this before in length, so I'll be brief. Uh, DJ loves having one giant monitor and having all this stuff on there. I prefer having multiple monitors. I had a cat leap like he did. I probably bought it for two seventy a couple of years ago. By a couple of years, probably like five years, maybe four years. That sounds about uh, right. That went out on me probably a year ago because uh, it is cheap. And what so happened? Then I ended... Was it a power supply failure? Or... Uh, no, I tried grabbing another power supply. It just—I'm pretty sure it was the chip. Uh, just some days would not turn on and other days would and eventually got to the point where it was off more than it was on. So it got frustrating enough and I tried to look into the boards, but they basically sell the boards for the price of the monitor. So um, so I ended up getting another one uh, as well. I got one that was thinner. It ended up with a ton of light bleed, It's but I still use it every day. I'm not as happy as the pr- past one I had. This, this one's called like a zero G model because it's so thin. Uh, which is cool that it's thin, but it's definitely introduced a lot of light bleed because of the way that they've made it. Um, and, but I do three monitors. I do a 1080p on the right that I can see pixel pixel uh, when I edit, and then as well as my main timeline on 1440p, 27-inch in the middle, and then I'll have a, a vertical like 1080p just for like footage logging and websites and scripts and other things that I need to look at while I'm editing. So I like that workflow. Uh, DJ hates bezels. And uh, I think that's about the entire argument we had last time. Every time, the same thing. (laughs) Monitors, monitors, monitors. I just like to keep up on the latest monitor tech because it's really sexy to see when the curved monitors come out and some of these really nice, high-end, color-accurate monitors. I probably won't ever splurge on one. I'll go to (laughs) an editing bay if I need to use one. Uh, Now, moving on to something that's a little more ludicrous and a lot more fun. Uh, I think it's called Pix in... uh, Seattle, yes, Seattle is coming up, and they have Samsung there at a booth, and Samsung is doing a Ditch the DSLR event in which you can go in, trade your DSLR with a lens and a battery in for a brand spanking new Samsung NX500 camera body with a lens. Now, that's a pretty interesting, weird proposition, and it is mm-hmm. while supplies last. Uh, it's basically free to go to the event. If you want to go see any of the speakers, it's only $10. Very affordable event. If I had known about it ahead of time, I would have popped over to Seattle and check it, checked it out because that's only about three hours away from me. But, uh, yeah, what do you think, Devin? Would you haul your DSLR in to Samsung and <laughs> trade it out? Um, no, because uh, there's nothing about the NX500 that I would find interesting, even if, because uh, face it, what we would have lying around, at least me, would be like a, a T2i, and I still feel like that would almost be more useful than necessarily an NX500 with a lens, uh, just because of all the adapters and features and everything else that you get. 
Also, I I don't know. Do, do the Samsungs overheat like the Sonys do? Uh, I feel I've, like I heard they do. Yeah, I've heard a lot of complaints about the NEX or the NX, not NEX. That's Sony. Dang it, the <laughs> NX five hundred uh, overheating, and then the, there's clip length limits too. I think it's um, I want to say fifteen minutes in four K is the limit that you're allowed on the NX five hundred. Whereas the NX1 has a much longer shooting range, and mm-hmm. I don't think it is nearly as heavily affected by overheating. Uh, as far as the Sony goes, I have heard a lot about the A7R Mark II overheating, but not mm-hmm. about the A7S Mark II overheating. And I'm wondering if it's just the amount of power it takes to run that high a megapixel sensor as to you know the cause. For well, the it, NX500, it, that's a 28.6 megapixel sensor, I believe. I might be wrong on that. People call me out and send me hateful <laughs> emails about how I'm wrong, but I think that's the case. So if that's well, the size, it's pretty big. It's, I feel like, too, it's because, first off, this event isn't for video people necessarily. It's not Samsung saying, ditch your DSLR video cameras for our video camera. And I think, too, that's why things like the NEX and some of the Samsungs have problems with overheating is because video is just an afterthought. I feel like if you use these cameras for photography only, you would never see an overheating issue. Uh, but True. they don't have, you know, the t- um, they, they don't necessarily put the engineering in for it to handle lots of video because they, they don't build it to be that kind of camera in the first place. So, well, you know, that is uh, weird, though. It, if you think about what's going on with these cameras, is they're basically reading from the sensor continuously to feed mm-hmm. the live view because, you know, your viewfinder is electronic, so is your screen on the back. So the sensor has to be on and capturing yeah. all the time for you to see what you're going to shoot. No, Why no, is it that it overheats in video mode? It's not it, it's... capturing. But when you go to video mode, you're activating probably a dedicated H.264 chip it's then going to start heating in the case up. Of the NX 500, I think, isn't it? <laughs> sure. Or 265. And it's going to sit there and start humming away at actually encoding data. And True. then that's going to run over to the I.O. And that's going to run to the memory card reader, which, as we know, too, when you run memory cards, they heat up, too, uh, because of the amount of data that you're pushing over those contacts. So it's 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 multiple elements. So even though it's constantly feeding and running it, First off, I don't. I actually don't think most of the time when you see a live view, you're seeing pixel to pixel of what it would capture. Uh, just because I think about how much data, like when when I'm I'm looking through my DSLR or something like that, and I'm looking at the screen, I don't imagine it showing me a 16 megapixel image at 60 frames a second because that's a ridiculous amount of data. I think it's showing me a shrunken down, truncated, simple video through some kind of algorithm that it's just reading off the sensor rather than actually like pumping all that data across the camera just for the sake of live preview. So while you say that, yes, it is, yeah, the sensor's active, I don't think it's actually sucking in all the data. I think it's just, you know, using some kind of Bayer pattern or something like that to pull the details out of it and then bring that to a low resolution example. I know we can pull focus off of them, but I, I don't know. Something in me just says that that how responsive those live view screens are. I'm not seeing a 16 megapixel image that's being shrunk down to however many million is on the screen. I think it's actually just doing a simplified version until you pull the shutter and then it's going to take in all the data at once. So yeah, you're you're probably right, man. I'm just giving you a hard time. <laughs> like, uh, really, it's kind of a farce when people say the sensor is overheating because. What's really happening is exactly what Devin's saying. You're in, you're engaging a bunch of other 
elements, extra chips that are running, encoders, transcoders, so on, that are writing to the chip and doing everything else, plus memory buffers that are actuating and, and all that. And they're all, if you've ever seen the teardown of these cameras, you know, the image sensor is here, but all of the supporting chips are within a millimeter to mm-hmm. an inch of the same frame. So you only have so much heat dissipation. And if you start activating all the other stuff, bam, you know, you're, you're generating right. that much more heat. Whereas right now it's it's streaming, but it's not writing. It may be a smaller, like less, um, less uh, Comp, uh, detailed yeah. image yeah detailed image being thank you sent to the camera <laughs> i'm still sick by the way guys so if you see me coughing off screen that's what's going on but uh yeah really interesting that they're doing this um there was a lot of rumors that samsung was going to get out of the camera market in general because they said they were going to be number one by 2015 or they're going to quit uh so now they're doing stuff like this which is sort of a guerrilla tactic marketing to get more Samsung products in people's maybe, hands? Maybe, or maybe it's just... Um, getting rid of inventory? It could be getting rid of inventory as well as then setting the mark for end-of-life cycles. I mean, if they... Because at the same time, they still have to support all of these products and everything else, and they've probably already put in infrastructure and money to support these products uh, for a period of time. And so if no one's using their product, though, that's a waste of money for them to have spent supporting the product. Uh, you know, for a smaller number of people. So if they can get more people using their equipment, it more justifies the R&D they spent as well as the infrastructure to support that they've spent. And so this could just be a move to try to get more in the marketplace, get more people using them and talking about them uh, just so that, like, it kind of justifies what's already been spent uh, before they probably say, all right, we're going to, like, tone things down now and just kind of stick to our point-and-shoots and stuff like that. I still don't imagine they're going to go away. I don't know what they were meaning when they said they are going to be number one because I'm not sure where uh, what kind of world from. I'd see that in. <laughs> but uh, still, it, it's one of those things where I think, yeah, they're they're probably trying to get some more stock out there, and this is kind of an easy way to do that. I don't know what they're going to do with the old cameras. They'll probably like push them off to somebody else to do like a mass sell or something like that and take a percentage off of that. But, uh, cause they do, it, they do ask that it is a functioning DSLR with a battery charger and a lens. Uh, so in the least it's probably going to be like maybe a T1i route there. I mean, there's some really old DSLRs where you can make bank on this. I mean, I'm thinking back to, uh, at least a couple One hundred of the bucks first... profit. If you could swing like uh, your T two I, I mean, what's the used market on that? Like one hundred and eighty bucks, and probably uh, yeah, under two hundred. You know, uh, like an eighty dollar lens, like the forty millimeter f two eight, and then a battery. <laughs> and trade that thing in, and bam, get like a six hundred dollar camera. Yeah, so I mean, there's you know, and I think they know that, and they're fine with that because uh, it's just it, they want people to start using them because I don't think anyone's really given it a whole lot of attention. And I think part of that's because there's no innovation in their products. I, I don't think that they've put anything in their products that someone else hasn't already done or has done better than them. So that's not anything against them. Uh, it just seems like they've they've probably built some solid cameras. I mean, I've used one or two of the larger DSLR-shaped looking ones, uh, and I've liked it, but there's nothing that's wowed me about it that's made me want to pick it over anything else. And the marketplace is already kind of crowded, so if you don't have anything new to offer, it makes it difficult. Now, the reason I don't think Samsung is going away in the camera market is, number one, look at this lens selection. You know, for a single company creating lenses, they have a massive selection of 
what is surprisingly good lenses to choose from, like a 50 mm-hmm. to 150 f2.8. These are really decent lenses available for their cameras. And the other reason I don't think they're going away is because if you go over to Europe and you run across any tourists from Asia, they have <laughs> Samsung or Sony cameras. Like those are the two that you see most commonly in their hands. Yeah. And I, I, maybe that they've just penetrated those markets better. Maybe China and Korea and Japan have better penetration for Samsung and they're just trying to get into the well, United I, States. I, I think they definitely have better branding uh, and better brand recognition. I mean, um, Samsung in general, like Samsung TVs and everything else, I think that in those marketplaces, uh, Samsung, the populace already has, uh, I guess, a much bigger idea of what Samsung is than around here when we say Samsung cameras. Nobody knows what you're talking about, and the only Samsung that we ever hear of is usually the phones, is the only thing that really carries any weight uh, in America. So you're, you're right. I'm sure in the, uh, in the Japanese-Chinese markets, uh, and especially, of course, Korea, uh, they they're probably have a lot of dominance, and they're probably more head-to-head with Sony, where in this market we look at and we go, Sony is like walking away with this in America, and Samsung's not doing anything, but Sony is still technically the bigger company, so, you know, it's to be expected. All right, moving on down the line here to some more stuff. Uh, actually, we've kind of flown through this pretty fast. Good job, Devin. Uh, I wanted to talk <laughs> I a try. L- little bit about music. Now, if you're a filmmaker, chances are you've done a bunch of work, and then you get done with it, and you put it all together, and it's missing something. You don't know what it is, and you're not sure why, but you watch it, and it just doesn't quite hit home. And usually the reason is actually because you need a score of some kind added to your video. Uh, Music is definitely a mood-setting thing that will change the way your film looks and feels as you watch it. And depending on the tone of the music, you can really either make it an upbeat moment or a sad, depressing moment with a solo piano or something like that. Now... Many of you guys out there aren't necessarily musicians, but you are filmmakers, and you probably can't afford to have someone write a score for you. So I kind of wanted to bring this up, and this is uh, in Computech, and their website is basically a one-man show of royalty-free music in every single genre that you can think of, as well as moods, uh, whatever you want to type in to search for it. I mean, you can just type, like, happy, Mm -hmm. and it'll bring in clips that are happy. Uh, Bringing up their website here, I don't use this very often because I do actually work with a composer on a regular basis, but every once in a while I run into this block where I'm working with Josh, our composer, or, uh, well, I don't want to call them all out because that would be (laughs) offensive to those guys. They'd probably get mad at me, but... The point I'm getting at is sometimes you can't get the music that you're thinking of for a particular shot. Uh, for instance, we shot a, a bar scene a couple of months ago, and the bar scene, we wanted some like kind of country western music for it. And our composer, he does a great job when it's orchestral music, you know, a really great with like violins and timpani and stuff like that. But when it comes to country western, he kind of wasn't getting the mood that we were going for. And we were able to swing over to Incomputech and grab a couple of country and western themed clips and just simply shove those into the timeline. And they worked out great. You start going through the archives for Incomputech and you will find music that you've strangely heard in thousands of things. And if you check out the owner of Incomputech's IMDb page, you'll see that it's in the four or five hundred credits range for movies all the way up to million dollar movies and all the way down to zero dollar movies. So, Devin, I guess what do you use for music in general, man? 
uh, in general because I don't have, you know, a billion friends that compose music and all kinds of talent. Um, there are some times where I'll do it myself. Uh, you know, I've got a synthesizer and stuff like that, and I have a small background in music. So sometimes if it's something simple, uh, I'll roll it out myself. Um, I have used this royalty-free stuff before, and it's coming really handy. Most of the time, uh, I've budgeted in money for, uh, usually through my clients. So if they're looking for a video that I know requires music, I'll budget in a little bit. Uh, and then usually I'll find some really great stuff on Audio Jungle, uh, which is a site where anywhere from like five to you know twenty dollars you can buy the rights to a piece of music to use it. Um, I like that because uh, besides a few of the more popular ones, the music isn't nearly as ambiguous. Like it's not like a bazillion people have it. And usually too on the website you can see how many sales something has. So you can see if it's like got five hundred sales and it's probably in quite a few videos. Uh, or if, you know, no one's really bought it before. So I'm a big fan of that website. I mean, I've used them too for their uh, their video hive for like After Effects compositing materials like graphs and things like that. But um, I, really like, uh, I really like Audio Jungle. And I think that the price is good too for a lot of the music that's in there. You can get, I mean, they don't have much in the way of sound effects, but they also have music kits and like files that you can mess with a little bit and do this and that with. And so I find it a lot more useful actually to spend money on this then necessarily uh, sometimes those, uh, what, what do you call them? Those packs where they give you like the stems of the songs, like here's the drum line and here's the like chorus and stuff like that. And you're supposed to build out the track yourself. Oh, you're talking about sample packs? E- yeah, I guess. Um, I think like uh, 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 there's there's a few people that sell those kind of things and I've seen them before. Uh, and it's just like I've I've sampled them and I've tried using them and I'm like, but they all just sound the same. And you all know where it comes from. And yeah, you can kind of customize it to that. But I feel like you only get like maybe eight songs for a hundred bucks or a hundred fifty bucks. And then usually too, it just it always carries the same feel. And so I'd much rather spend that money getting individual uh, pieces of music that perfectly fit what I want than trying to take some kind of music pack and rearrange instruments and whatever, and then try to make it fit whatever I'm doing. I just find that it, it seems to come off as more of a quality product at the end of the day when I do it that way. So, because I used to do that stuff, I used to like sit there and rearrange drum sets and like synths and everything else, and like try to take somebody's music package that was a couple hundred bucks and turn it into what I needed for, you know, the scene or the commercial or whatever. And then I just realized like, uh, it still sounds the same. Like there's no way getting away from the fact that this is one coherent song and I'm just chopping bits away from it, but it's still the same song and I'm not getting a lot for my money. See now for me, and I actually, I'll write my own music when the budget is, is tight. Um, and, <laughs> but I write in a different manner. So I actually will take my zoom H one or my H four N around with me and pull samples of kick drums, hits, uh, anything I find in nature. I've got, I, I got bored one day and sampled every single pot and pan in my kitchen <laughs> with uh, different types of drumsticks in order to get like different sounds. And I've gathered those up and I keep those. And actually, it's right here next to me. I use it almost all the time. The MPC 1000, you can load individual hits into the MPC 1000 and you can build entire songs uh, from kick drums, snares, hi-hats, and so on, and pitch shift things as well. So if you have like a single trumpet sample of one note being played, you can step that across the entire scale and get trumpets at each pitch that you need in order to sort of like add that symphony sound to it, as well as timpani and so on. And you can access other MIDI libraries as well. So 
I'm not sure about the sample packs that you're talking about, but the sample packs I make myself, um, I've got probably 15,000 or 20,000 samples uh, collected and saved on a single compact flash card. I mean, they're backed up, of course, but uh, <laughs> they're labeled and so on and organized so that when I need to build audio for something, I can actually go from the ground up and create it. The problem is, is sometimes you need something that's much more orchestral than a re- an NPC can accomplish or that is very hard to accomplish. And then going to an outside composer is actually nice. But the copy tech right. is free. And he's put together a bunch of orchestrated bits. If you're shooting a short film and you have a budget of 200 bucks or 50 bucks or, you know, no bucks, and you're just getting your friends together and filming something, I mean, free music is better than no music. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the other thing is, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. The (laughs) other thing is audio samples. Now, the, the, the hits, the cues, and so on, are also extremely important to say, and I'll, I should put together a video on this. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll do that next week on <laughs> what it does to a clip because I shot a death scene a couple months ago where we basically like chopped this guy's head in half and we shot all the special effects and everything and put it together. It looks good. But when you watched it, it was just like, oh, this has nothing, no feeling, no love, no nothing. I think I even sent the clip clip over to Devin to check out. And yeah. when you watch it without audio, it's awful. But because we used uh, samples of watermelons being squished and we used samples of me stomping around in boots in the mud and water pouring and so on in order to get the blood and gore sound effects into there, it changes a lame kill into an amazing, mind-blowing, uh, maybe not mind-blowing, uh, a very decent kill right out of the shoot. And it's the same with a fight scene, you know, punch sounds. And there's other places like uh, soundbible.com and freesound.org that have mm-hmm. tons and tons of free samples available. And you can kind of layer these in your timeline to build an entire sort of audio landscape. And it, it's one of those things that's kind of, uh, underdone in low budget films. Uh, if you can sit there and find all the samples that will build up to make a good punch sound or a good car start, or, you know, the keys jingling in your actor or actress's hand, uh, people won't notice that, but mm-hmm. they'll notice if it's not there and it'll make your right. film crappy if it, it isn't in there. But if you have it in there, it takes you from, you know, amateur to the next level up. And, even if you're shooting on the worst cameras ever, having a good sound bed and a soundtrack and so on, even if it's stuff that you've heard in a thousand other things, like that's enough to make you look a little bit better. Maybe in the next festival that you send your film off to, or, uh, you know, you screening people will be more excited about it. Maybe they'll buy it because they hear like, Oh, the crunch of those bones breaking when you kick someone in the leg or something like that. I mean, I guess Devin, what's your experience with that? Have you ever had to sit down and just layer sample after sample onto some stuff? Oh yeah, for sound effects work, absolutely. Uh, it's it, and it's so hard to come across good sound effects too, and that's why uh, if you're if you are an independent uh, filmmaker, it's definitely one of those skills you should try to acquire if you see yourself, you know, kind of working on stuff on your own for a while, because it's not that difficult to go out and get the sounds you're looking for. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of talent behind it, you know, Foley artists and everything else. I don't want to take anything away from them, uh, but 
you sp- you'll spend so much time trying to go through a sound effects library trying to find that sound you want as opposed to most times I can just grab uh you know something that I know is going to kind of give me that sound and do it a few different ways and give myself a few different samples and I'll be done so much sooner than trying to get another sound and putting that into uh you know whatever sound effect I'm trying to come across and sound design is super important I mean people always forget it I'm not going to say oh it's 50% of your video uh, but it it is absolutely crucial if you're trying to uh, put somebody in that environment and suck them in and make them like emotionally feel something. Uh, it, it it it's it's subconscious, but it's something that makes you connected to your films uh, and connected to the content. I mean, there's it, it's and it's crazy too because everyone knows about DPs and everything else and editors, but no one seems to have the same kind of recognition for sound guys, even though every director knows, every good director knows it's absolutely crucial for his work to have great sound design and it makes all the difference in the world. So it's definitely one of those that if you haven't really been looking at, you know, sound design uh, and you you feel like something's missing from your short films, it could very likely just be your sound design. You just you'll wow yourself if you're editing it yourself. You'll wow yourself with just you add a little bit of this and this and this and this. And then you rewatch the scene from beginning to end and go, wow, that was a lot better. Like that really hit where I thought it should. So. Uh, it's it's definitely something uh, even just for fun too. It's it's fun to make sound effects. It's it's one of the it's one of the like easier, more fun things to do. I feel like in filmmaking because uh, minus deadlines and everything else, just like making random noises and recording them and stuff like that. It's not like necessarily as stressful and as like uh, you know like oh we we've got we we've got five minutes here to shoot this scene and then we got to go over here and shoot this and everything else. I like I like capturing sound because sound just just kind of like laid back and be like oh what do you think oh well we could try this and it's just it's one of the more like relaxing fun parts of filmmaking yeah get yourself if you don't have one they're like 15 dollars. they're called contact mics and they're basically like a piezoelectric mic that's covered with rubber so that it's waterproof and you can stick it in like sinks and stuff like that and then throw stuff at it and you can get some amazing sounds from that plugged into your field recorder and they're super cheap uh, excellent for yeah. putting inside a fruit. Um, if you need bone breaking, salary and carrots are great. Uh, mm-hmm. We use uh, the sound of someone biting an apple a lot of times when you need bone breaks because like they're, the movie sounds aren't what you would expect. Oh, no, no. Now, yeah, one, of the, one of the, the things behind uh, the scenes? I want to point out, and actually this is my tr- tr- cheap cheating trick. My intern, Lucas, a uh, great guy, and I've actually named the folder after him, Lucas uh, Arts Audio. Um, but uh, Lucas, what he does for us uh, as an intern is he actually goes through each scene that we turn into him and creates a Google Doc with the audio as well as all the samples he thinks will work for each of the hits, punches, so on and so forth, and then wraps them all up into a nice bow so that I can go through, grab the audio. And, I mean, this is three scenes right here. <laughs> and it's it's massive, but once you, you have someone doing that for you, it can really speed up your work. So just uh, just a cheat way to go. Sorry, Devin, what were you going to say, man? Oh, I was, I was just going to uh, say that... Uh... <laughs> I barely even remember now. Uh, just one last thing. Uh, Audio Jungle, one, it, it's not sponsored at all. It's just it's a product that I actually use and I've enjoyed quite a bit um, because they do kick over a decent percentage to the people who actually write this music. Uh, and there's some people who do make a decent living actually just composing really good music for the uh, this website and other websites like it. Audio Jungle isn't the only one. But one thing I like about Audio Jungle is when you preview a song, there's a download link right there for the song. 
of course it's watermarked, but I love the fact that I don't have to like try to record it or hunt for it. I can just click download, start editing with it and see if it's actually what's going to work for the scene uh, before I buy it. So on sometimes on clients, I'll download the file right there and it is watermarked. It says like audio jungle every like 10 seconds, but I'll actually edit that into the client's piece, send them that and go, are you happy with the music selection and the way that it works? And if they say yes, then I go buy it and I just replace the file and it's already done. So I really appreciate that. The fact that they give the actual files that are like the same length and everything else. So it makes it easy for me to edit to my heart's content, make sure it's absolutely perfect before I pull the trigger and actually buy it. So uh, once again, not a sponsorship. It's just a product I really like. Um, and and two, not that, you know, you need to spend money on it. There's Because like we've discussed, there's so many great free uh, solutions out there. It's just one of those where I've I've tend to find the perfect thing I'm looking for or close to like 90% there of the perfect thing I'm looking for from some of these websites. And yes, it costs money, but you know, sometimes that's, you know, something you got to figure out if it's worth it or not, you know? So by all means, I think we've discussed music and sound effects enough. You should do a whole nother episode on is what you should do. Yeah. I think I might turn that into an actual uh, DSLR film noob show. Um, Let me see. I got one, like two more things on here and then we'll get out of here. Uh, first, we've got this really strange-looking field recorder. Uh, for some reason, this came up in my feed, and I was looking at it. This is the Roland SD-2U uh, SD recorder. Uh, it has two built-in speakers, runs on uh, AA batteries, also has the capability of two XLR inputs and a powered 3.5-millimeter uh, input for a lav mic really strange was on sale on B&H for like $142 the other day. And I think that's how it showed up in my feed. What do you, I mean, what, what the heck is this? Where did it come from? I've never (laughs) even heard of this thing. And like, now it's out there. You know, it's funny. It literally, the design and everything else totally makes me think of like the eighties. Do you get that at all? Yeah. It does sort of feel like some sort of eighties multi-track recorder of something. Like you put a tape in it or something. Um, it's interesting. It looks like it has metronome functionality and everything else. I feel like this is supposed to be made for an independent artist to try to lay down some sample tracks. I mean, it's got, you know, two mics built into it, which is kind of nice. Um, it's just one of those where, uh, you know, the, what's it? Cause I guess the predecessor to it would be the Roland CD2U, uh, which is a CD slash SD recording system. So, um, it, it's really fascinating because you're right, I haven't seen this before, um, and I is that a I don't CD know. player on the side of this thing too? That's what it looks like. What I can the confirm what nor the, deny? Wow, uh, on, that's on the CD two U. Oh, not okay. the one this you're is, talking about. You're talking about the SD two U. Yeah, so the SD two U is the smaller one that's missing the CD player. So basically, right. they just made one without a CD player, and it what the heck. Like like I said, I think it's for independent artists to lay down tracks and stuff like that. Maybe the preamps are good. I can't imagine those little speakers are that great, but maybe for some guy, it's a great portable solution for him to always have on him to record stuff when he's out and about and doing other stuff uh, that's easy enough to operate. Um, I couldn't see throwing this in a sound bag, though. I couldn't see like using this as just because it's a little too big for that kind of situation. But it does look like it's built for, you know, the artist on the road, per se. Put your black shirt on, wear a white suit top and then hang this off your side and be like, yes, man, I'm ready to roll. Get in your audio. Uh huh. Yep. 
Okay. Yep, absolutely. This this needs a strap. This needs a strap around it so you can have it on yeah, your like shoulder. Yeah, like some big hulking thing. All right. Enough <laughs> no, 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 on the and then, like the microphone needed. coming out of it. You remember those guys? Like, <laughs> like, like doing doing little like newspaper reporters like getting interviews and stuff like that. Can <laughs> I get you on tape on this? Are you, are we on the record? <laughs> are we on the record? Oh, all right. I'm moving on oh, down the line. Man. This last one's yours, Devin. I'm gonna. That's enough on the roll. Is it? The SR Magic Anamorphic <laughs> Lenses. You're excited sure. about this. I don't shoot anamorphic because I think it's... I, I'm not going to comment on for... what I I think about uh, anamorphic stuff because people get mad at me when I say that. You so, think Devin, what do you think silly. about it? You think it's silly. Um, these... The uh, man, I felt like I had the price up just a second ago, and now I can't find it. Uh, or what the price was estimated to be. I think it was like supposed to be over 1000 I was going to comment on that uh, for... I understand they're anamorphic, uh, which means that they're allowed to charge more money. Uh, but I think that they're overpriced because the quality of these lenses do not seem to uh, hit the mark I'm looking for. Uh, there's uh, The main reason is because in the show notes, we there's a Vimeo of using these lenses, and they are soft, and it looks like there's chromatic aberrations in them. And they really don't look that fantastic, but and it that, does look like... that short is an example of what makes me dislike anamorphic shooters. It's, it's just like this pretentious lady in a dress carrying around a fish <laughs> and like setting silverware on a table with like some guitar-laden drum and mm-hmm. bass rhythms playing in the background. Like, what? Do you, what? Uh, and what is this? Like, is this a Lynch film? Come on, guys! Like, no, you know. it's yeah, it's it's see, because she represents the American people, and the fish represents you know uh, impoverished nations. No, it's just <laughs> it's one of those it's it's one of those uh, the those things where it's cool because there is only one focus element. That's the main thing with shooting anamorphic is you're usually like adapting it through a projector lens, and you got two focus points. It's obnoxious to use. You can't pull focus in the middle of a shot, really. Um, so this negates all of that. Um, and this is, but this is only for micro four thirds. And it seems like, you know, a a lot of people I know who want to make cinematic images with their GH3, GH4s, or even their GH2s, uh, at the event I was at last night, I had a guy walk up to me that's like, is that GH3? I never see anyone using those. I have a GH2 that's hacked. I love it. Um, those, uh, people who want cinematic images from that, like, would love to have these kind of anamorphic lenses. I would not recommend them at all uh, because it's just I I'm, like while there is some style to it and I could see using it, the price of these lenses that's estimate, which I feel like somewhere I can't find it now. I feel like they're going to be somewhere around twelve hundred per lens. I'm looking right now, and the F one four or excuse me T one four is uh, four ninety nine, and the T zero point nine five is twelve hundred dollars or thirteen hundred dollars. Excuse me. So uh, that's the pricing we're looking at on there. There For are what millimeter? Some, what size? Uh, that's the thirty five. Uh, they have an eight. Or an eight hundred dollar ten millimeter T two point one, and uh, so they're kind of all over the place. A, no, those aren't the anamorphic ones. You're not looking at anamorphic. Am I looking ones, at the wrong? Ones, uh, I might be looking at the wrong ones. They look uh, yeah. So anamorphic, they're going to have a thirty five, a fifty, and a seventy. Uh, it doesn't look like they've released pricing yet, uh, but um, so far their world premiere of these lenses with this dinner scene. Uh, definitely leaves a lot to be desired. Uh, I can't tell if the vignetting is an aesthetic effect or the lens. That's how kind of how how this shot is. But um, for the most part, I guess for like one project, it may be fun to use. But it's one of those that guys, um, 
I would avoid spending this much on a lens that kind of comes out with a look like this, unless you're going to borrow it. I mean, it's one of those where I could see using it once or twice if I'm going to super stylize something. I'm making a music video or something, and I, I'm, I know it's not going to be super sharp, and I want it to be kind of messy, then great. You know, whatever, you know, gets the look that you're going for. Uh, but uh, I've seen a few people herald this as being like, oh, turning my GH4 into a film camera? No, just relax. It's so far from what I can tell, it doesn't look like it's that impressive. Um, you'd almost be better off with an anamorphic adapter, uh, than necessarily using these because, uh, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't look that great. It doesn't look like something I'd be all over. So just keep that in mind. Um, just cause I did see a lot of people getting really excited about these lenses and now this first video test came out and I'm like, don't be excited. <laughs> you're not missing a lot. I guess if you're into that look, I mean, uh, I yeah, always tell like people, said, like, go get there's... some FD lenses if you want that sort of, like, soft focus, interesting, mm-hmm. like, creamy, like, weird colorations added from the lens itself. Because old FD lenses with uh, moss growing inside them will definitely give right. you that. Rub your nose grease <laughs> right, on or... each of your lenses and, like, screw them up and then put them on your camera <laughs> and shoot are... regular. Don't shoot anamorphic. What's that called, those lenses that come from uh, Soviet Russia? The old um, like pre World War II lenses, oh, they called them yeah. like uh, dog shit lenses. Well, I don't no, know if you can say do, that. Uh, DSO optics, uh, dog shit optics. Uh, those guys actually use uh, what the I, I said it wrong, and actually somebody sent, sent in a correction for the show, and I should have written it down. Yeah, uh, they they're like the hyper one uh, twenties or something like that, or two hundred ones lenses mm-hmm. from Russia that they like. They're classic lenses, and then they dink them up a little bit more, and then put them back into. Uh, body right. and but the, the the thing is is those lenses they're commonly available. You could do the same thing with uh, sure. Rokinon lenses. You could do that with uh, any. Sure. Go get some Nikon lenses, some Nikkor lenses from back in the day. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm just. <laughs> but enough uh, about that. Enough about anamorphic. DJ hates them, and I don't even like these anamorphic lenses. So we can just move on. All right. Last thing on the list here, uh, Devin. You just got in the Ceremonic audio adapter for cell phones this thing is wacky sure. as i'll get out but you were interested in it so i had him send was it was i what do you think <laughs> um, man uh i i think it's interesting i still have to do more tests with it um <laughs> i'm showing it on the video podcast if you guys can see it uh it's got you know two like uh geez 3.5 millimeter inputs that are supposed to be for like the mics even though like the the phone records mono um <laughs> And then it, it does have actually a mini XLR input, and it comes with an adapter. So I'll actually be able to try it with some proper microphones. I just I doubt that these ones are going to be that fantastic. Does It'll it provide whatever phantom power? Has, but what? Does it provide phantom power? On yeah, that? and there's phantom power. It takes one 9-volt. I don't know how long it lasts yet. didn't say in the documentation. I haven't uh, run the battery down yet. But um, it does come with phantom power. It's also got a headphone jack, so you can listen to what it's recording as well as flip a switch so that you can hear playback on there uh, off of the, the you know your phone or whatever the recording device is. Uh, I was surprised because this thing actually gets big enough. I don't know if you trust it. I mean, it's all solid aluminum, and it's actually a bit hefty, but it'll actually fit uh, my Note 4 with a gigantic case on it. Wow. Because I'm one of those guys. So uh, this will basically fit your 6S Plus or whatever else you got going on. So um, <laughs> I still got to play with it a bit more. Uh, and do some audio tests and see how it sounds. It's pricey. Uh, one forty nine. It, it looks like this is the pricing on that. 
Uh, question though, well, and actually something I want you to test is, uh, can you plug lav mics like the 3.5 millimeter lav mics into the microphone inputs on the top? The, you know, the, those two little guys, that would be really interesting to see if that works. Yeah, that's, that's something I'm going to test as well as see how good the preamps are and the battery life. Cause, uh, this, I guess you could see as being an upgraded version to like an iRig, which I've always really liked the preamps on the iRig. I think the iRig has sounded really great for being 25 bucks or whatever it is. So part of this will be a test to see, hey, does this sound as good as an iRig, plus give you other features, like you can see levels on it, uh, which is kind of nice, um, as well as I guess you get stereo that gets down mixed into mono. I don't know. I guess that means you could have two inputs and it'll just do a flat mix, because it's not like I can select more of the left or the right track. It just shows me the levels on the left and right track. So. I imagine it's getting down mixed to mono because cell phones don't come with two inputs on their uh, on their tracks unless you've got an iPhone and you're using the uh, data port on the bottom. So, yeah, that is a little interesting. It's such a strange device, but I suppose right? now that people are trying to get really good four K yeah, footage out of their are iPhone, vlogging. S. There's people doing four K videos and they're vlogging and stuff, and they're like, "Yeah, this is you know." Me with my girls. I don't know. Do you, could could you could you see uh, could you see some some girls using this at the mall recording oh, themselves, being like, "Yeah, hey, <laughs> this is my Snapchat." I don't know. I, I'm not totally into all that. <laughs> Ceremonic's done some really interesting stuff, though. They've created a lot of units similar to like the Beach Tech and Juice Link devices that have. Uh, very good specs. The prices are fairly affordable. It, it is in- really interesting that they provided two microphones as well as a mini XLR input. Probably the first right. I've seen for a cell phone application. And, you know, honestly, like you have good audio on your cell phone video. That takes it up a notch compared to oh, for sure. everybody Cause, else. Because the image quality on cell phones with good lighting has become really good. I mean... I feel like in a lot of cases, especially with some cell phones doing 4K, and a lot of it depends on bitrate, but if you're looking at flagship phones and the iPhone and whatnot, it's basically performing as well as if you went and spent, you know, $500, $600 on a 4K Handycam at Best Buy. Um, True. I mean, f- uh, you know, cell phones are already have been kind of getting up to the mark of point and shoots. Uh, and now they're getting up to the mark where they're like defeating camcorders. They're They're becoming your go-to like you know, camera, video camera that you have on you for recording the kids or whatever else is going on. Of course, for us, for filmmakers, it provides an interesting opportunity. You don't get control over focal depth or other fancy things and gain and whatnot and low light ability. But, um, you know, you can get a B camera, you can get a vlogging camera that's built into your phone, basically, uh, or just documentary purposes. It's amazing what you can pull out now. And the big thing has always been audio, just because, you know, good audio happens by getting the microphone closer to the person slash, um, you know, um, a bigger, larger diaphragm microphone that you won't find in a phone. So this may be kind of a solution. Maybe that's where they see the market headed. They go, hey, everyone's going to start shooting 4K on their iPhones and their audio is going to be crap. But if they have our product, their audio can definitely take a step up and it can actually be, you know, considered decent uh, broadcast worthy material. Who knows? Well, the other thing I've seen uh, happen quite a bit, at, like NAB a couple of years ago, this was starting to show up. People were actually using their cell phones as a field recorder with like a lav mic or some sort of adapter like this. Now, I suppose you could throw this on your subject with a phone, record their audio, and then sync the audio up and post. And now you're getting good, clean audio from that guy 
uh, back yeah. into your shoot. Uh, that's a lot of work to me. Like, why wouldn't you just carry a Zoom H1 or, you know, a Tascam DR05 well, or something like that? You're, but, you're right. Part of that is considering the price. Um, one thing that a, a Zoom H1 won't give you, though, is phantom power. So True. Maybe maybe that's kind of where this product exists, is it allows you to get phantom power into your cell phone as an impromptu recorder or for your stuff or your DJ, and you just put this monstrosity of a DSLR riggy onto your H1. So if you want uh, <laughs> dual channel controls and phantom power, now I've got the Juice or the Beach Tech DXR, uh, DXASLR attached to the Zoom H1. <laughs> Okay, that's silly. And he's, no he's quadrupled the size. All right. Well, on that note, Devin, I look forward to the review of the Ceremonic <laughs> unit. That's pretty interesting. I'll, I'll, yeah. Hopefully, you'll shoot some stuff with the, the microphone inputs. Uh, definitely looking forward to the audio samples from that. Uh, mm-hmm. Devin, where can people find you, man? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, DevoCut, uh, where I occasionally post videos that are cool about filmmaking and inspirational stuff and all that blah. <laughs> and as always you, you guys know, sometimes it's just it's sometimes there's videos that i see people post that's like supposed to inspire you to make films and stuff like that and i think to myself i'm like ah uh, like that's inspiring but that's never caused me to go out and make a video usually it's actually the need to tell a story that's made me want to go out and make a video so um, one thing i do have and i might post this later on this week uh i take part in i'm i actually bring in the scripts i have a script bank of probably 700 scripts people send me scripts all the time and uh we dole out good scripts as like a competition for people to just film short films and a lot of times the thing it takes to get people from thinking about filming to actually going to film is to have a script in their hand and like a plan to go do something. So every year, uh, myself and Matt and a couple other people from deadlantern.com, we actually distribute uh, these scripts as a script bank and each person gets to choose one and go out and film something. And it's gotten a lot of people off their butt and out into the world to actually film a short film. So if any of you guys are interested in something like that, let me know and I can put you in touch with the people. Uh, the one we do right now is only for Nebraska filmmakers, but, uh, We've been thinking about expanding it to other places and making it regional. So if that's something That'd anybody be would be interested in, let me know. I can't just give my scripts away because I might need to use them someday, but uh, <laughs> we can definitely dole out some of them. Uh, special thanks also to Tony, who probably kicks in 10 to 15 scripts every time we do this. So he's an animal as a writer, and his stuff is pretty good. On that note, guys, you can find me on Twitter at DSLR Film Noob. You can find this podcast anywhere podcasts are distributed, including SoundCloud, iTunes, and so on. If you like what we do, just go ahead and click the like button on this video. Write up a review on iTunes. Doesn't cost you anything. Helps Devin and I quite a bit. And Mm -hmm. we always enjoy your comments, questions, and complaints. So send them in, and we will try to get to them. In fact, we probably need to start reading a few of those on the air. We'll work on that. We'll definitely work on that. On that note, we'll see you next time on another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob 